Podcast One Production. Welcome to the Great COVID Reset Part Two. When we published our first series on May 15 this year, global cases of COVID-19 had just hit 4.5 million. More than 300,000 people had died and the virus had not yet reached every corner of the globe. Many leaders had declared the first wave of the pandemic was over. In Australia, infections had just topped 7,000, but only a few hundred people had died. It felt like Australia had dodged a bullet and the drive was on to open the economy or risk a catastrophic depression that could bring down governments. We all knew that a second wave of infection was inevitable. Just how big was the question? There had been an average of 18 new cases reported across Australia that week. The majority had been in Victoria, an ominous sign of things to come in June. The nation was beginning to reopen, ready or not. Today, National Cabinet agreed a three-step plan and a national framework to achieve a COVID-safe economy and society. We know we need to be careful to preserve our gains, but we also know that if we wish to reclaim the ground that we have lost, we cannot be too timid. The talk in May and early June was buoyant. The World Economic Forum called it a great COVID reset that could potentially reshape the world. This was almost utopian in its outlook. Humans could overcome their fundamental selfishness and cooperate in a global project. We could change the mindset that had led the international community, largely unprepared, into one of the great emergencies of human history. By October, such talks seemed irrelevant and fanciful. A powerful second wave had surged across the world. At October 31, the global death toll stood at 1.9 million and infections had topped 45 million. Victoria's outbreak closed state borders and plunged our economic future into uncertainty. Where once the talk had been of resetting human affairs to a new standard, now all eyes turned to the creation of a vaccine against COVID-19 that would allow us to return to old ways as soon as possible. My impression is that basically Frydenberg and Morrison intend to go back to business as usual. I don't think anything has impacted on them. They simply want to return to the status quo. I don't think they have any serious reform agendas. Professor Peter Doherty is Australia's best-known scientist. He shared the 1996 Nobel Prize for Medicine for his work in immunity, which is translating into new cancer treatments. Doherty was the first veterinary surgeon to win a Nobel Prize, and at 80 years of age, he's still active in research on immunity at his institute at the University of Melbourne. He's confident that science will provide the answers to this crisis. A few months ago, you were confident that by April next year, there'd be large-scale vaccination taking place in Australia. Are you still confident about that? That is the intention as far as CSL and the University of Queensland vaccine are concerned. The intention is that we'll go into a phase three clinical trial in the United States in December. Sufficient trial results will probably take at least a couple of months, maybe three months. Once they have the results, I think it will then probably take the regulatory people, the FDA in the United States, for instance, a couple of months to really look at all the data and evaluate it. 
But basically, they've already made large numbers of doses of this vaccine. And the strategy is preparing to roll that vaccine out after July. This timetable was confirmed in early November when drug companies Pfizer and Moderna announced they'd achieved results of more than 90% efficacy in their vaccines. The delivery of vaccines in little more than a year is the biggest news since the pandemic began. Without a vaccine, governments would have to consider fundamental changes to our society. Major reforms always carry risks at the ballot box. And there's a sense now that we're returning to the status quo in policy terms. Well, honestly, I think the aim of the national government is to go back to business as usual, to keeping the poor in their place and making sure they're treated with a degree of cruelty, they're readily exploited. You know, I'm sounding like a complete Marxist, which I'm not. One case in point is the treatment of the homeless during the pandemic, says Doherty. State governments moved rough sleepers into temporary accommodation in hotels when COVID hit. But there's no plan to address the underlying issue of homelessness, which in fact poses a continuing threat to public health. My understanding is that it's been cheaper to have the homeless in hotel accommodation than it is to have them on the streets. Because if you have them on the streets, you've got all the healthcare costs that go through our publicly funded healthcare system, you have all the policing costs and you have the crime costs. So basically, if we looked at all those costs across the board and say, well, you know, when we cut funding for state schools, when we cut funding for services to the poor, that results in more criminal activity, what does this actually cost us? If we looked at all the costs, I suspect we could actually have a much, much more pleasant and better society for the same cost. Doherty warns there are limits to the protection that a vaccine could afford the community if we're reluctant to address our vulnerabilities. The possibility of COVID reinfection is the wild card in this game. The coronavirus is doing some other things that we do not understand very well. In some senses, it seems to be subverting aspects of the immune response. And that's variable, of course, and it's obviously more problematic as people get older. But it is the case that some people have been reinfected, which is not terribly surprising for a respiratory infection. But it's also the case that with the common cold coronaviruses, which are out there, People get reinfected with the same virus every year. And we've known that since the 1970s. Well, we sort of. We've never taken that much notice of these viruses because they don't cause severe problems. They're just some of the viruses that are there that cause the common cold. I mean, you know, common cold is caused by 100 different viruses or more. Five of these coronaviruses have jumped probably from bats into humans over the last 20 years. Five of them. And there are loads of these things out there in the bat population. And there's going to be more of them, and they could be a lot worse than this one. So I think this COVID-19, we should treat as a trial run. We need a really big program. If recurring pandemics become the norm, the world must do more than simply rely on a vaccine. The status quo of life in dense urban settings and an addiction to international travel makes us highly vulnerable. Doherty says science must develop drugs that can cure coronavirus, or at least reduce the time patients spend in hospital. The vaccine provides prevention, but not a cure. Antivirals will offer a treatment if you do fall ill. 
This will be a decisive factor in achieving a COVID normal. Should we also be investing heavily in a COVID antiviral, anti-inflammatory as well? Absolutely, we should. We're not hearing much about antivirals. We think there's a lot of work going on antivirals in the big drug companies, but they're not telling us. We're not hearing anything. I think the pharmaceutical companies are trying to make these things, but they're not telling us a whole lot. And of course, once they get a candidate, they can test it a lot quicker than you can test a vaccine. You can really test a drug fast because basically you get approval to actually test it in people with sickness who are sick. So the drugs is a preventive. So I think we should really be going full speed to develop that strategy because if the vaccines are problematic for some reason, that's our alternative. The problem is that a vaccine is immensely cheaper to distribute than a drug. The reason we haven't eliminated HIV worldwide is because of the problem in developing countries. And even though a lot of money has been given, and this is one good thing that George W. Bush did, for instance, was persuade the drug companies to allow their drugs to be developed as generics. There's still no vaccine for HIV 40 years after it emerged from the jungles of Africa. Doctors can treat AIDS with antiviral drugs, which have allowed millions to live with the deadly disease. There's hope that antivirals will also dramatically lower mortality rates from COVID-19. We could make antiviral drugs against these viruses because the drugs can be made class-specific. So the anti-HIV drugs work with all the HIVs and there's a lot of variants. We should have a whole panel of drugs that can be used to treat coronaviruses. The Hendra-type viruses, and there's another virus, Nipah. So we should have a panels of drugs ready to go to treat these infections that are possibly going to jump across into us. The three principal targets are coronavirus, the paramyxos, and the influenzas. Now, we do have drugs against the influenzas, but we could do with more and better drugs. Professor Peter Doherty says we need a suite of drugs to fight the coronavirus. The all-important vaccine will be rolled out around the world from mid-2021, but it won't be enough on its own, particularly if COVID-19 reinfection becomes a significant issue. We'll need antivirals and anti-inflammatory drugs if we're faced with living with COVID-19 into the future. There are 316 vaccine and 212 interventional COVID studies registered globally. However, only 31 relate to antivirals and drugs repurposed for SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes coronavirus. And there are no guarantees. However, an Australian startup company, Covirex Medical, is hoping to have success in this space. Yeah, my name is Simon Tucker. I'm a PhD in virology originally, uh, but most of my career has been spent in antiviral research. Uh, I used to be head of research at Biota. Since then, I've founded other companies. I've been CEO of a number of other companies and um, currently uh, working on this particular issue, the COVID issue. Well, I'm Richard Lee. I'm the, one of the co-founders and executive director of a company called Covirex Medical, which was founded early this year with a mission to uh, develop by repurposing antiviral drugs against COVID-19. Richard Lee and Simon Tucker are not reinventing the wheel. Covirex has a drug class with proven antiviral activity in previously marketed drugs. 
A provisional patent has been filed and 130000 in seed funding raised to date. To their knowledge, it's the only project with a drug that has dual action, antiviral and anti-inflammatory activity. So it's taking existing drugs with known properties, for want of a better word, and then re-delivering them in a way where it, they get directly to the site of action, which is the lung. And um, in other words, inhaled. And that is advantageous on a number of levels. One, it delivers it exactly where it needs to be. But two, it's taking advantage of what is already known. So already known about the disease, already known about the drug, means you can move a lot quicker. Covirex has proved it can kill COVID in the laboratory. Now researchers are working on effectively delivering the drug via an inhaler. And your drugs proved successful in the lab so far? We expect to get the lab data from our own tests very soon, but there are published data that support that. There's a long road ahead for this startup. If everything goes to plan, it will still take about one year to get their product to consumers. And that underlines the depressing reality that even with a vaccine, COVID will be with us for some time to come as a seasonal illness. This small Australian company is playing in a field dominated by Big Pharma, but they believe they have a shot at success. So where to from here? You know, um, we have filed provisional patent for our drug candidates. And we are planning for a public listing. So I'm hopeful that the clinical trial will be successful, which will allow us to put a more proper value on the company sometime in 2021. Repurposing existing drugs is a hit and miss affair with new illnesses. The US-backed remdesivir was an early contender as a cure, but has produced disappointing results, despite massive backing from government. The remdesivir example is a good one. Uh, so that was a company called Gilead in the States that basically took what they had on the shelf that had been used for Ebola, for instance, and did exactly what we're talking about, which is repurposing. Now, is it the only one in development? No, not by a long way. Uh, there are hundreds of drugs in development of various different stages. Some of them look better than others, and a lot of them don't look very good at all. But that's what happens in the early stages of drug discovery and development. So um, one should be gratified that this work is ongoing and not be pessimistic. The lessons of history weigh heavily on this process. Coronavirus is not simply going to disappear, as US President Donald Trump once famously observed. In fact, the worst may be yet to come especially in the Northern Hemisphere winter. If we take a leave out of the Spanish flu, where 28% of the global population then was infected, we talk about 500 million people, and we're talking about between 50 to 100 million deaths. So if we just simply say 20% of that, not 28% of the current population, you talk about um, 1.6 billion people to be infected in total, and let's just say 10% is 160 million people. Now, are we going to be as bad as that? I don't know. But certainly, everybody should be coming together to prevent that outcome, right? If we can even get up to, say, 10% infection in total, then we are very happy, right? Because right now, we just today crossed 41 million infection totally in the in the world. We are increasing at the rate of one million every two and a half to three days. That's how bad things are. So in the Australian context, you know, as much as the fact that we are the biggest island in the world, we are not really an island because of the speed of international travel. That's the reason why I'm so pessimistic. 
But on the more optimistic side, because there are so many treatment solutions being developed or repurposed, as indeed Covarix is doing, I'm optimistic that sometime in the next three to six months, there will be an antiviral that will come to the market and may well be you know, much sooner than the wider community use of vaccine to finally deliver the treatment. Not that people won't be infected, but at least if you are told that there's a treatment and you won't die, you can become more confident and open up again, you know. The distribution of antivirals is a critical element in bringing COVID to heel. It's a very different dynamic. So a vaccine, to be effective, you've got to get it into an enormously large percentage of your population, which means you've got to make a lot of it. And there's the whole challenge of cold chain and ensuring that the material that you're actually injecting with is still active and all that kind of stuff. All of that needs to be done. We as a society know how to do that. It just needs to be done. An antiviral is different. An antiviral, can you imagine pills on a, on a shelf in a bottle or an inhaler or something of this nature, where you're using it when you need it, rather than vaccinating the whole population before they get infected? Let's imagine a post-COVID scenario, a post-lockdown scenario. Let's say we're, we're lucky and the vaccine rolls out early 2021. The whole population won't be vaccinated for at least a year, I would imagine. And even then, there'll be pockets that are not yet vaccinated. But that doesn't mean absolute protection. We're going to have to learn to live with the disease, and we're going to have to learn to manage that disease. I believe on an annual basis. I personally believe the disease will become an annual, but much like the flu situation. And so we're going to have to use antivirals and other interventions to help us manage that disease. And that could be ongoing for a very long time. So how well placed is Australia in this post-COVID future? Richard's saying lots of change. You're saying less change, but there's some change. How well placed are we for that? I think Australia is well placed. Uh, I think we have as good scientific brains as anywhere else in the world. And that's a credit to our open uh, education system. Business uh, plan can go ahead and you can be as expansionist as you want to be from there on. Let's not forget, in 1921, the Spanish flu pandemic was supposedly over. And then between 1921 and 1929, the Americas had a boom. Maybe we will have that again. If there's an opportunity, you can see even in crisis, uh, you can see the opportunity. Just like the Chinese characters of crisis is danger and opportunity, right? So we saw the danger, we saw the opportunity. If the business can adapt and seize the opportunity in the face of danger, um, then the business can thrive on. Australia's caseload has fallen dramatically as the Victorian outbreak has been brought under control. Life in many Australian cities and towns looks as it did pre-pandemic. But no one should assume a third wave would not be just as threatening. It's a super dangerous assumption. (laughs) Look, the virus is not mindful. It's not intelligent. But it will take advantage of any crack in the system that's there because it's evolved that way. All it needs is a host. All it needs is that one interaction, that one infection, and that one infection leads to the next infection, the next 10 infections, the next 100 infections, and it's away. So how can life ever go back to normal once we've known this, Simon? I think I'll keep wearing my mask for a while. I'm not throwing mine away. But actually, I think, you know, if you want to talk positively, this could be a really positive thing that's come out of this, is our awareness of infectious diseases, our awareness as a community about how diseases get passed. And 
a willingness to wear masks. For some reason, our society didn't embrace using masks. Whereas if you go to Japan, China, Hong Kong, wherever, that embraces the use of masks, you see people wearing them all the time. And it's not unusual, and it's considered a sign of respect. In the next episode of The Great COVID Reset, I'll explore the political and economic challenges Australia faces as it seeks a COVID normal. There is a chance to rewrite outdated assumptions, but will our political system allow Australia to change its mindset towards a more sustainable future? Or are we doomed to make the same mistakes over and over again? The Great COVID Reset is written and produced by Adam Shand. Mixing, editing and original score by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nolly Shan. Graphics by Jamie Lee Garner. The Great COVID Reset is a Podcast One Australia production.